O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. To steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, we pray today that you might fill our vision with you. In all your beauty and glory, we ask that you would inform our hearts how to pray. How to pray for what we should ask. Shape our minds and hearts with your desires, with your plans. Make us hungry for your presence. Satisfy us. Lord, make us content through your word. Make us desperate. Desperate to share your glory with others. Set our hearts aflame with worship for you. But we pray for our community. For those who do not know you, we pray that you would convict them of their sin. That you would convince them, Lord, of the gospel, truth. That you would draw them to yourself, regenerate hearts. And change lives. Father, use us to advance your kingdom here and globally. Set our hopes and desires and passions on your kingdom purposes. We ask that you would make us willing, even eager, to surrender our own wants. Deepen our love for you. Make our devotion to you great. Increase our love for one another. We pray that you might knit our hearts together with an unbreakable bond of peace and unity. Lord, there are others gathering in your body all around the world today. We pray that you make your presence and your purposes vivid in their minds. Speak through pastors with faithful messages from your word. Let them know that they are being prayed for. Inform their prayers, Lord, according to your purposes. Renew them, conform them, and inflame their passions to serve you. Father, we pray for our broken world. If we had any doubts of the fallenness of this creation, Lord, they continually are removed every day as we just view what's going on in our world. Sin flaunts its arrogance and rebelliousness. Men and women everywhere are consumed with foolish pride. We pray that you send forth the gospel. May your truth, Lord, be a wrecking ball upon hardened hearts, shattering them. Lord, changing those hearts through the power of your Spirit's regeneration to make them hearts of flesh, to draw them to you. Lord, we pray that you would work with local and national and international leaders. We know that decision-making is filled with challenges that often go unseen, undetected. We plead with you to supply wisdom, to move providentially. Lord, we pray this morning that you might change the heart, the mindset of Vladimir Putin. That you might, Lord, indeed shatter his heart. We pray for the people of Ukraine. We pray for your protection. 
Lord, from Kiev to Mariupol. Lord, every city that's in the crosshairs of aggression and destruction, we commit these people to You and pray for Your protection, for Your provision, Lord, as they're desperate for water, for food, for medical supplies. Lord, we pray that You might make Your presence known to them. Let them know that, Lord, You are intervening. <clears throat> we pray that You would equip our leaders, our president, with the moral courage to follow Your wisdom, and that You would raise up leaders from around the world to join and bring real change to an ugly and destructive situation. Lord, we pray that You would guard them from political ambitions, but that the changes that You place upon their hearts and minds, Lord, would encourage gospel proclamation and true divine transformation. Lord, in our own nation, we are continually reminded that we don't need aggressors from outside our borders, Lord, because we, we turn and become enemies of one another, killing our own. As if we have no appreciation for the value of life. Lord, we intercede and pray that Your peace might prevail. That You might work in Your church across this land to make the gospel, Lord, known and to use the gospel to bring healing Now we pray this morning that you would give us ears to hear your word, that you would drive out distractions from our minds, that we might be able to concentrate completely, totally upon you. Stir our hearts, compel us to understand and obey only you. We pray this through the power of your spirit working in us because of what Christ has done for us. Amen. We are this morning in Philippians chapter 1. The um, work in Philippi is an intriguing work. Acts 16 offers us a peek into Paul's second missionary journey which meant that he visited Philippi. He and his team first visited Derby and Lystra. Then it was there that he encountered Timothy, a true son in the faith, we're told. Paul wanted to go to Asia at that point, but the Holy Spirit would not allow it. When they came to Mycenae, he planned to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit said no. They went down to Troas, where Paul received a vision. And this is what Acts 16, 9 and 10 says. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. They went directly to the leading city in the district, which was Philippi. And there in Philippi, they encountered some incredible things that God was doing. They connected, first of all, with a group of women who were meeting by a river. In the midst of those women was a woman named Lydia. She was evidently a businesswoman and very effective at it. The Scripture says that she was a worshiper of God. But... At the teaching and preaching of Paul and his team, she became a true convert and was baptized as a believer. They encountered a slave girl who was being, uh, being exploited by her owners as a fortune teller. She had some sort of demonic presence in her that was enabling them to make money off of her abilities. So Paul, 
his team, cast this demon out of her, and her owners responded with great rage and anger. They dragged Paul and Silas to officials there, which led to their being beaten and thrown into jail. It was there in jail, the Scripture says, about midnight, and Paul and Barnabas, nursing their wounds, obviously hurting, began to sing praise and to offer worship unto God. Text says that the prisoners were listening to all that was going on, and about that time, God sent an earthquake that opened every door in the prison house. Paul encouraged the prisoners to stay put. When the jailer suddenly awoke and saw that the doors were all open, he was prepared to take his own life because that's exactly what would have happened to him. Once the authorities found out that he, under his watch, had allowed these prisoners to escape, to which Paul responded and said, Don't do yourself any harm, we're all here. This made such an impact upon him that he came and asked how he might be saved. And so again, they shared the gospel, and his whole, him and his whole household were converted and baptized as believers and followers of Christ. This church had incredible beginnings, and it had a special place in Paul's heart. He writes in the very beginning of this letter that he has much gratitude for their care for him, for their partnership in the ministry of the gospel. In fact, it seems that this letter was prompted by a gift that they had sent to him, one that greatly strengthened him, encouraged him, provided for him. He's writing to them from prison, either in Caesarea, Rome, or Ephesus. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. Now, I want us to move through these nine verses in chapter 4. With this as a backdrop, I'm going to do a quick exposition of this text, and then we're going to talk about one particular element that seems to be providing the foundation for all that Paul is saying to the Philippians. So the exposition of Philippians 4, 1 through 9. Paul, first of all, expresses his great love for the Philippian believers. He says, whom I love, and he says, calls them my beloved. This, this is very emphatic terminology. He has a great affection for them, a great appreciation for them. He tells them to stand firm in the Lord, to stay firm. He also talks in verse 2 about conflicts, how conflicts, personal conflicts among people work against the gospel. It serves as a deterrent, a detriment to the gospel. Thirdly, he talks to them, challenges them, exhorts them to delight in the Lord unceasingly, without stopping. Keep delighting in the Lord. He encourages them not to be embittered by difficulties. Notice what he says here. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Have a reputation for gentleness and never forget the nearness of the Lord. Don't be embittered by difficulties. Be gentle. Be calm. The difficulties are going on everywhere. But don't allow those to affect you on a permanent level. The Lord is at hand, he says. He is near. We talked about this last week. The Lord is near. He makes clear that He is near us, even when circumstances suggest otherwise. So, Paul says, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't be fretful. Don't be worried. Now, I know some of us worry more than others, right? Some of us get easily upset about things more than others. And we may even joke about that. But the truth of the matter is, we all find ourselves in moments of concern 
and anxiety. But he says, we should not be anxious, restless, or stressed, or panicked. No matter how minor or major the circumstances, the conditions around us may be. How they may seem to us. Don't allow these things to push us into this pit of anxiety and worry. Instead, he gives us an alternative. And this is what we're going to spend our time on this morning. He says, pray. Pray. Look to the Lord. Pray about everything, all things. By prayer and supplication, give your concerns to God. Every one of them. Now, you may be one of those people that like to go and pray for, you know, family members who may be sick or ailing or hurt or specific things in your life or others' lives where their career may be in jeopardy or a, a job may seem to be getting ready to go away. You want to pray for certain things, but when it comes to things in, in, in your own life, you may be tempted to say, you know what, I'll handle these things. I'll take care of these things. If you'll handle these things, Lord, I'll take care of the rest. Are you one of those kind of people? He says, pray by, by prayer and supplication, give all your concerns to the Lord. Not just some, but all of them. And to do it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Now this is key. An attitude of thanksgiving. A spirit of gratitude. How can you be grateful when you're facing something that's causing you great concern? Something that seems to be generating anxiety in you? How can you be thankful? Why should you be thankful in the midst of things like that? Situations like this. Well, our gratitude does a couple of things. Number one, it recognizes that God is in control, that God is in charge. We don't have to doubt that. When we become anxious, we're doubting that, aren't we? We're doubting that God is in control or that God is working for our best interest, for our good. That's what happens. It's a tug of war that goes in us. So when I'm grateful, I'm recognizing that God, who ordains all things, also ordains the processes to accomplish His plans. Which means that God may be using the circumstances, not maybe, but is using the circumstances to do things in my life that could not, would not be produced otherwise. So He's using the difficulties, He's using the challenges, the things that would cause me concern, He's using those to make me into the image of Christ, to shape me into the image of Christ. When we approach Him by prayer and supplication with thankfulness, He says, the peace of God will guard our heart and our mind. The peace of God. Not peace like the world offers, Jesus told His disciples, but real peace, real comfort, real rest in the midst of whatever the circumstances may be. Peace that's beyond human understanding. In other words, it's not logical. It doesn't make sense to the human eye. Peace that frees your heart and mind to focus on other things. And he gives us a list of those things. When you pray with thanksgiving, the Lord brings peace. Peace that defies human understanding. And enables us to put aside the circumstances, to ignore, to not be controlled by the circumstances, and instead to focus our minds and our hearts on other things. What is true, what is honorable, what is just, what is pure, what is lovely, what is commendable, what is excellent, what is worthy of praise. This is Paul's instruction, and Paul says, this is my example. In other words, you hear this from my words and you can see this evidence in my own life. Now, his testimony carried a lot of weight. I mean, Paul's been lowered through city walls down to escape those that wanted to kill him. He's been stoned. His life was a life of constant adversity, persecution, suffering. He says, 
take it all to the Lord in prayer. Now, prayer is a prominent subject. It's a prominent subject even among those who would not consider themselves to be believers or followers of Christ. You know, you'll never or rarely, never is a strong word, right? But you rarely will ever hear someone reject an offer for you to pray for them. Now, people have different ideas about what prayer is. They have a different understanding of what prayer is. So I want to pose the question this morning, what is prayer? What is it? Well, prayer is simply stated as just communicating with God, isn't it? It's a conversation with God. It's telling God what is on your heart, in your mind, what you see from your perspective. Now, prayer is not necessarily informative, for God. It's not like He doesn't know what's going on, right? He knows all things, so He knows what you're seeing, what you're feeling, but it's important for you to express these things to Him because as you do, you're expressing confidence and trust in who God is, and you're expressing your dependence upon Him, your need for Him. Prayer in humble humbleness is a an expression of your dependence, that you're convinced that God's wise, that God loves, that God is good, that God is faithful, and that God is powerful. And by the same token, you are equally convinced of your own weakness, your own propensity to sin, your own fickleness, as opposed to His faithfulness, your lack of love and kindness, the fact that we are most often consumed with darkness around us. So prayer is communicating with God. It's talking to God. Any relationship requires communication, does it not? I mean, a real relationship needs communication. And prayer is our communicating with God. It reminds us of these important things. Why is it so important? Well, we could spend all day talking about this, but I'll give you some relief here and say we're not going to talk about them all. Let me just give you three or four things that I think are very important when it comes to prayer. First of all, God tells us to pray. Now, I'm going to share with you a lot of scriptures here. So if you've got a pen, you want to write them down and look them up later, I would encourage you to do that. Don't try to follow in your Bibles at this time because we're going to move through them quickly. God instructs us, God tells us to pray. Luke 18, 1, and He, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Matthew 7, 7 and 8, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. 1 Thessalonians five seventeen. Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Secondly, not only does God tell us to pray, but Jesus' example challenges us to pray. I do want you to take just a moment, hold your finger there in Philippians, turn over to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Beginning with verse 21. Mark 1 verse 21. And they when and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have, have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him, and they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. 
And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons." And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now, there's incredible ministry going on here, isn't it? I mean, immediately, 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 teaching with authority. His fame, the scripture says, is spreading everywhere. Healing the sick, casting out the demons. Then notice verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking if any of us were around a ministry that was seeing the success, seeing the evidence of fruitfulness going on in their lives the way Jesus was, you might be tempted to sleep in the next morning, right? You might be tempted to think, I don't need to spend time in prayer. But he was so conscientious in his walk with the Father and making that known to others, letting them see his dependence even with the Father. And I think that's instructive for us. I think it informs us in our prayer lives. Luke 3, 21, Now all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on Him. Luke 5, 15 and 16, But now even more the report about Him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear Him and to be healed of their infirmities. But He would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Not just once, this was a regular pattern in his life. Luke 6, 12, In these days he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Luke 9, 18, Now it happened that as he was praying alone. Luke 9, 28 and 29, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. John eleven forty one through 42. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Luke 22, 41, 42, He withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down praying and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Luke 23, 34, as he hung on the cross, as he's dying under the weight of the sins of the world, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I don't think we need much explanation here, do we? If the Son of God made prayer such a clear priority, how much more important is it for us? The disciples saw this, they recognized this in Him, and in fact, they asked Lord, teach us to pray in Luke 11.1. 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us how to do what you're doing. So God instructs us to pray. Jesus' example challenges us to pray. Thirdly, I want you to see the Scripture teaches that our prayers affect things. Our prayers affect things. Luke 10, verse 2, And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. The implication is clear. As we pray in this way, God sends out laborers. He certainly wouldn't ask you to pray if he didn't intend to answer that prayer, right? Luke eleven nine. 9, 
And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. In Luke 18, 2 through 8, he told the parable of the persistent widow who went to a judge who was not a God-fearing man nor a respected man. And the widow said, Judge, give me justice against my adversary. But for a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? He will give justice to them speedily, Jesus said. Luke twenty-two thirty-nine 39-46, He's left His disciples there in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And He comes back and they're asleep. And He says, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Matthew 21, 22, And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. John 14, 14, If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John 16, 24, Until now you have asked nothing in my name, ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. Scripture says that our praying changes things. Fourthly, Scripture teaches us that we are changed as we pray. We are changed as we pray. God teaches us to pray. Jesus demonstrates how important it is for us to pray. Scripture says our prayers change things. And the Scripture also says that we're one of those things that's changed through our prayers. 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. You know the story. Paul said he had a thorn in the flesh. Something fleshly. Whether it was a physical malady. Whether it was, was someone that was giving him a difficult time in the ministry, we don't know for sure, but we know that he prayed three times. He says, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. (laughs) Not the answer he was looking for. And yet, he writes, therefore... Because this is what God said, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses. When he prayed three times for the Lord to remove it, that's not the picture of contentment, is it? Lord, take this away. It's a problem. It's irritating. It's annoying. It's distracting me. No, Paul, I'm leaving it. I have a purpose. I have a reason for leaving it there because I want you to trust in my strength, not in your weakness. Paul said, okay, I get that. That's clear enough. So I will boast in my weakness because in my weakness, your strength is magnified and made known to others. Fair enough. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Hmm. Nehemiah. Nehemiah got news that the people, his people in Jerusalem and Israel were continuing to struggle, suffer. He asked a visiting delegation as he's serving, as he's serving in a high-up position. In, in captivity. How are the people doing? They're not doing well, was the answer. Which moved upon Nehemiah's heart, and he began to pray, began to intercede for them. He fasted and prayed for them. And a funny thing happened. God began to speak into Nehemiah's life and said, I want you to request permission from your boss that he might give you a sabbatical from your service as a slave. 
Nehemiah's got to be thinking, you know what that means? That means he's probably going to kill me. This is not what you asked for. And yet, God moved upon him and changed Nehemiah's look, approach, attitude about the circumstances. And he did. He went in and talked and was allowed to go and help rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Esther got word from Mordecai that she should use her position as queen to speak into the life of the king so that the people, the Hebrew people, might be spared from the coming destruction. And she's like, do you know what this means? This means he's not going to be happy with me. This means I could lose my position. I won't have any more influence over him. Mordecai says, well, if you're not going to use the influence God's given you, why, why is that a problem? So they engaged in fasting and prayer. And what happened? Esther changed her heart. And she did approach the king. And God used her to protect his people from destruction. Jonah found himself in the belly of a whale. Big fish. Three days. He was a hard-headed prophet. Wanted his own way, his own purpose. Didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. But you know, when you're three days in the belly of a big fish, your perspective can change. The scripture says, Jonah cried out and said, okay, you win. You win. Whatever you want, I'll do. Fish rolled up on the beach, spit him out. And he went to Nineveh like God had instructed him to and preached the gospel and God moved upon people's lives. Prayer changes things. Prayer changes us. Jacob spent all night wrestling with God in Genesis 32 and God changed him. He changed his name to illustrate the change that he made in Jacob that night. Changing his name from Jacob to Israel. And touched his hip so that he walked with a limp from that day forward just to commemorate what he had done in him. So how can we pray effectively? Prayer is possible only through Christ, our mediator. We don't go to Christ on our own reputation or, or to God the Father on our own reputation or our own name. We go through Christ who went to the cross and shed His blood, has purchased our redemption. His righteousness imputed to us gives us access to the Father, an entrance to the Father. Which begs the question, does God hear the prayers of an unbeliever? Does God hear an unbeliever's prayer? Well, God is omnipresent, right? God is omniscient. So, yes, we would say that God does know the prayers of the unbeliever. But God is under no obligation to answer or respond to the prayers of an unbeliever. He may, he may, because it serves His purpose to do so, answer those prayers and maybe answer them in a way even the unbeliever wants. But He is under no obligation. The only thing that makes Him, puts Him under obligation, and He has done this Himself, is in the name of Christ, the authority of Christ, that we come through Christ. For believers, He has promised He will hear our prayers and that He will respond according to His desires and plans, which are always in our best interests. The Lord Jesus Himself continually intercedes for us, for His own. Hebrews 7, 22-25 says, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but He holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 9.24 For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. 
Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Prayer is fueled. It's empowered and it's administrated by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And we're encouraged in Ephesians 6.18 to pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. We have a habit of saying at the end of our prayers, in Jesus' name, and I think sometimes we reduce that to a formulaic approach to prayer, right? We pray because Jesus said, anything you ask in my name. So we tag that onto the end of all of our prayers, in Jesus' name. But we should think more carefully about it. Jesus said all authority had been given to Him from above. And that we are to go in that authority. So when we pray, we are to go approach God through the authority of Christ. He is our mediator. We approach the God in Jesus' name. It means that we pray in His authority. We approach the Father through Jesus' redeeming work. So what should we expect when we pray? Entitled thinkers believe that whatever we pray, God is obligated to do. Others think that maybe God will pay attention and maybe He won't. It's just kind of casting lots, right? Whatever God does, He will do. Still others, it's more of a support thing. Unbelievers kind of lean into this. They won't reject your offer to pray for them. In fact, when things are not going well for them, they will ask you to pray. Makes them feel good to have lots of people on their side. Maybe to help them persevere in difficult circumstances. When you say you hold to the sovereignty of God, you believe God is supreme, that God is in charge of everything, that nothing goes askew from God's plans and purposes. How do we begin to reconcile this idea of prayer, changing things, changing us, with the sovereignty of God, with the supremacy of God over all things. Some people adopt a fatalistic position and say God's going to do what God will do. And essentially your prayers make no difference. That's not what Scripture teaches. Is God sovereign? Is God perfectly accomplishing His will? Everyone in this room, most likely, I hope, I trust, would say, absolutely. We believe God is sovereign. He is a huge, incredibly supreme God. Has no rivals whatsoever. Nothing takes place outside of God's purview or power. Does man have responsibility to plead with God about certain things? Absolutely. This is scriptural. So how can we reconcile these divergent positions? D.A. Carson has offered what I think is a very simple explanation that helps us with this. He describes two truths. Both are clearly taught in the Bible, and both can be simultaneously true. First truth. God is absolutely sovereign. But His sovereignty never functions in Scripture to reduce human responsibility. Can I say it again? God is absolutely sovereign, but His sovereignty never functions in Scripture to reduce human responsibility. Number two, human beings are responsible creatures. They choose, they believe, they disobey, they respond. There is moral significance in their choices. However, human responsibility never functions in Scripture to diminish God's sovereignty or to make God subject to human choices. I'll give you an example. Some people 
reconcile the idea of God electing His own, choosing whom He's going to save. And they'll say, well, you know, that means that God just looked down through the corridors of history and saw who would respond to Him. Well, see, that's not an accurate picture of God's sovereignty, is it? Because essentially you're making man sovereign. Man makes the decision and God's just reactive to that. That's not what we're saying. Human beings are responsible creatures. They choose, they believe, they disobey, they respond. There is moral significance in their choices. However, human responsibility never functions in Scripture to diminish God's sovereignty or to make God subject to human choices. Now, we encounter problems here. We see these truths through human lenses, through our own human eyes. We see them and we say, no, it's got to be one or the other, right? The laws of logic tell us that it's got to be one or the other. It cannot be both. It's a mysterious tension. Scripture argues that both can be and are true simultaneously. That God is absolutely sovereign and man has responsibility. There are certain things that our human brains and experience simply cannot grasp. We simply can't get our thoughts around them. That does not make them less true. For instance, the Trinity. Three persons, one God. We can't explain it. We can't define it. Or Jesus, incarnation. He is fully God as if not man. He's fully man as if not God. Two natures, one being. We can't get our minds around that. We are not equipped intellectually or experientially to be able to explain that in a way that satisfies. There is a mystery. There is a mystery, and so it is with God's sovereignty and our responsibility. We pray with full assurance that prayer matters. God's made it clear in His Word. We pray believing that our prayers change things. God says so in His Word. We pray earnestly believing that our prayers are useful for God's outcomes. We pray with full assurance that God is absolutely sovereign. That we are not telling Him anything He doesn't already know. He ordains His purposes and He ordains the means by which His purposes are achieved. Our prayers are faithful, urgent, passionate, desperate, believing that they matter. Our prayers are confident, expectant, trusting God's perfect control. He changes circumstances, people, and us, and He brings about His plans. Now, all this, I want to offer you a challenge today. We have this wonderful gift called prayer. It's an open invitation to talk with God. It's always there. If you're in Christ, you always have, you always have a welcome opportunity to come into the presence of God and to share anything that is on your heart and mind. You're not going to shock Him. You can ask Him anything. You can tell Him anything. He is creator, He is ruler, He is supreme. And yet, He is personal, He listens, He speaks, He corrects, He encourages, He explains. Paul says we should always pray. We should always take advantage of this opportunity to spend time conversing with our Heavenly Father. So what's the challenge? I'm going to give you eight, and it will take less than a minute for me to give them to you, because I'm just going to give them to you. One, I challenge you, us, to be more faithful in prayer. To be more faithful in, in our prayers. Now, you may be very faithful in your prayers. I commend you, but we all can grow in this, right? We can all grow in this. Be more faithful 
in our praying. Number two, take everything to God in prayer. Take everything to God in prayer. There's, no, there's nothing that we say, you know, hey, I can handle this. I've got this. I already know this. Take everything to God in prayer. Listen as much as you speak. Listen. Prayer is listening. Not just informing God, telling God, but prayer is listening as much as you speak. Read His Word. Wait for Him to speak to you. Pray for the Lord to send forth harvesters. Our fields are ripe. The fields are ripe. This challenge to pray continues to be set before us. Pray for the Lord to send forth harvesters. Pray for our church to be used by the Lord here in this place. Ask God for wisdom regarding the merger opportunity with Grace Church. Ask God for wisdom concerning the merger. Pray expecting God to answer. Not wishing. (laughs) You don't have to go to Him wishing that He would answer. But expect Him to answer. Pray desperately believing that your prayers will change things. Pray desperately, believing that your prayers will change things. This is, just, this is just foundational, right? We could go on and on and on with lots of other things that can alter the way that we approach God in prayer or the way that we engage in prayer continually. But this gives us a good start, right? A good start to engage the Father effectively in prayer. Let us be faithful prayers. It's an incredible gift that God has given us. We do His name less honor than it deserves, and we do ourselves a disservice when we don't take advantage of what God has given us. Father, we are grateful and thankful for this gift of prayer. We ask that, Lord, Your Spirit would work in each of our minds and hearts to show us, Lord, where there's weakness. Weakness in our coming to You in prayer. Lord, that You would make us uh, to see and understand the value in nurturing this conversation with You on a regular basis. Or to see how You uh, have an attitude of emphasizing, prioritizing the prayers of your people. How you continually promise to hear the prayers of your people. To answer those prayers. To change things, at least from our perspective. To change us. Make us, Lord, a praying people. Praying in all matters for our edification, effectiveness, Lord, and for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.